Hello, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. He's a an improviser and an outsider. Also, I love, oh, I love the fact that he doesn't have a job. Most heroes have a job. They're, they're either a secret agent or, a, uh, you know, a starship commander on a five-year mission or whatever. He's not like Captain Kirk or James Bond or whoever. He's, he's just a wanderer. In art, you can crash your plane and walk away from the wreckage and you can just keep on doing that. And why wouldn't you want to do that? That's far more interesting than just having a safe flight. My final guest this season is a man of many talents. He's an actor, writer and director. He's possibly the only Equity member to have played Hamlet, a Dalek and an Otter. He's also the author of The Complete David Bowie. He is, of course, Nicholas Pegg. Hello, Nick. Thank you so much for agreeing to take part in this podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Paul. It's an absolute delight to be here. Thanks for asking me. How easy was it to decide on the heroes you'd like to discuss with me today? It was quite a hard thing to think about, actually, being asked, you know, to come up with a, a little list of, of people to talk about, because you could go in so many different directions, couldn't you? You know, heroes from the world of literature or cinema or personal heroes from your own life. And, you know, there, there are all sorts of different kinds of heroes. You know, I could have chosen William Shakespeare, Toni Morrison, Kate Bush, David Attenborough. I mean, he's everybody's hero, isn't he? You know, So, yeah, there's all sorts of different people one could choose. The main ones I've chosen to talk about today are a fictional character uh, and a writer and a musician. And I, I, I guess people will probably be able to work out who the musician is, but... They may be wrong. <laughs> they could be wrong. Are there any qualities that they have in common? Do you know, funnily enough, as I was thinking about them and thinking some of the things I might, might talk about, I realised that there were, yes, in all of them, a, in one way or another, a sense of being someone who sets an example about how you can, as we say these days, live your best life, you know, be the person that you need to be. They all, in some ways, stand for that sort of thing. And also, they all walk a very interesting line between being very serious people in their intent and also being very humorous people. I didn't kind of really realise that until I started thinking about them. And I thought, oh yeah, actually, this fictional character is in many ways rather similar to this well-known rock musician. <laughs> okay, well, let's kick off. Who is the first person that you've chosen and why have you chosen this person? Okay, well, the first one I've chosen is the, the fictional character because really, I guess it was my first childhood hero and is a character who has ended up being a very, very important part of my life and continues to be to this day. It is uh, The Doctor from Doctor Who. I was born in the late 60s, so I, I, the first Doctor Who I can remember was John Pertwee, but Tom Baker was my real sort of growing up Doctor. And I adored that programme so much. I think to many kids growing up, Doctor Who is one of those things that's a bit of a magnet to the kids who maybe aren't going to get 
picked for the football team or maybe don't even have any interest in football. You know, while a lot of my friends at school, you know, the highlight of their Saturday was going and seeing a football match or watching Grandstand. The highlight of my Saturday was those 25 minutes uh, of adventure in the TARDIS. And I've thought about this a lot. You know, I think the Doctor, Doctor Who appeals to kids who do feel a bit other and obviously in my case that's of course part of that is to do with sexuality but it doesn't have to be that but if you're on the fringes of your peer group or whatever it might be then the doctor offers something different you know i enjoy a james bond film as much as the next guy but doctor who you know the doctor's a hero of an entirely different sort he doesn't win by using guns and fists and macho firepower he, he uses his wits and his ingenuity he's a an improviser and an outsider. Also, I love, oh, I love the fact that he doesn't have a job, you know? Most heroes have a job. They're, they're either a secret agent or, a, a, you know, a starship commander on a five-year mission or whatever. He's not like Captain Kirk or James Bond or whoever. He's, he's just a wanderer. You know, he turns up on a planet or somewhere in history, and if there's injustice or, or something going wrong, then the Doctor gets involved because it's the right thing to do. You know, that might seem rather quaint. It might seem a slightly old-fashioned idea of morality sort of fairy tale almost but I think it's something that impressed itself very deeply on me as a child and I think it probably continues to impress itself on young minds today you know kids who grow up watching Doctor Who are encouraged to think not about self-interest or self-gratification or you know self-preservation or whatever but about the fundamental importance of doing the right thing and being the best person that you can be. You know, Russell T. Davis is wonderful at giving, you know, Rose Tyler, Billy Piper had this wonderful speech in the last episode of Christopher Eccleston about exactly this idea. Just being the best person you can be, it might seem so straightforward, but look, I mean, we can all think of a few people in the world today who probably could have done with watching a bit more Doctor Who, can't we? And humour, you know, that's the other thing which I mentioned earlier on. I think the Doctor celebrates the importance of not being too earnest, if you see what I mean. There's a quote from Tom Baker's Doctor, which I remember as a kid very clearly. He's, he says, there's no point in being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes. And I think that's actually a really important point. Silliness in the right circumstances is much underrated. Of course, you can't just be silly the whole time. But there are certainly circumstances under which being silly is a significant and valid reaction to the human condition. And people who spend their entire lives desperately trying not to be silly are the silliest people of all. The scariest thing in the universe is not actually an army of Daleks or Cybermen. It's, it's people who have lost the ability to see the funny side, in particular to laugh at themselves. And along comes the Doctor and <laughs> makes fun of them, you know, and that in itself is a kind of heroism, I think. The other thing about Doctor Who is that I grew up to be an actor and, lo and behold, I, I got involved in Doctor Who. I'm, I'm, I'm a Dalek. Getting to work on the show, apart from just the joy of, of that, because it's something that meant so much to me as a kid, does actually mean that I've ended up being able to work with some other real-life heroes associated with that, you know, because of the TV show, but then I've also worked on the audio versions of Doctor Who. So I've actually worked with people like Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen, the dear late Elizabeth Sladen who played Sarah Jane. Uh, we did an episode on TV with her, and what a absolute joy that was because she was my Doctor Who companion you know when I was a little kid. Uh, one of the marvellous things about being a Dalek is that it brings with it all sorts of weird and wonderful extracurricular activities. Um, in my in my capacity as a Dalek I've done children in need sketches with Harry Hill, I've done live episodes of Blue Peter, I've got a Blue Peter badge I'll have you know. Uh, but um, without a doubt the one that's been the greatest honour to 
do was to shoot that little Dalek scene in Russell's fantastic Channel 4 drama, It's a Sin, which I know you also had some involvement with, Paul. Um, my partner, Barnaby, is also a Dalek. Um, the pair of us are the two principal Daleks in Doctor Who, so of course we know Russell, uh, and also Phil Collinson, the producer on It's a Sin. We knew them both very well from Doctor Who, so it, it was just lovely when they called us up and asked us to come up to Manchester and shoot that sequence for It's a Sin. And uh, as I'm sure people know, the principal character in It's a Sin, Richie, was partly based on the actor Dursley McClendon, who Russell knew back in the day. And, and Dursley did actually appear in, in, you know, an actual Dalek episode of Doctor Who back in the 1980s, at around the time that he first got ill. So that scene was, was actually a little tribute to him. Um, and the whole series, of course, was a tribute to that generation, that time that that you and I and, and many others lived through. And it's a tribute to all of our friends who didn't make it. As young people, we all sat at more bedsides and we went to more funerals than we should have had to do. And it's such an important story to keep alive, isn't it? And there's no better person to tell that story than Russell. So, you know, I was only a Dalek, but just to be a tiny little cogwheel in that extraordinary series is without a doubt one of the greatest privileges of my career and we got to blast our way through a wall with lots of big explosions and uh, you know that's always fun and um bernard cribbins i worked with bernard cribbins on doctor who i mean he's a hero isn't he just a whole career devoted to bringing joy and pleasure to generations of people he came into doctor who and i was in a couple of episodes with him and he was just such a lovely man, and it just felt like you were, you know, in, in the presence of, of true greatness there. I mean, what an absolute privilege to work with someone like Bernard. And then a few years ago, when it was the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, there was a great big convention uh, organised by the BBC at the Excel Centre, you know, in the Docklands in London. A huge, huge thing. And lots and lots of people came along, and uh, Bernard was among them. And I actually did a little session on the stage with Bernard. I, I was sort of interviewing him in front of the audience, and he was telling his anecdotes. And it was just such a lovely thing to do, because, you know, we'd already got to know each other a little bit. We'd worked with each other, and we did this thing. And <laughs> as part of this thing, we threw questions open to the audience. And a little child in the audience put her hand up, and she said, uh, can you sing one of those songs? Songs that you were telling us about and lo and behold Bernard stood up aged I don't know 80 something and proceeded to sing absolutely word for word the whole of uh, Hole in the Ground with everyone clapping along and I mean I just thought I'd died and gone to heaven I'm on stage with Bernard Cribbins and he's performing the Hole in the Ground and everyone's clapping along it was just wonderful that song in itself is it's a novelty song. I think Noel Coward chose it on Desert Island Discs. But it's so, you know, it's, a, it's again, actually kind of what I was saying about The Doctor, isn't it? It's a comedy song, but it has a genuine point to make. You know, life is full of people in bowler hats coming up and saying, don't dig it there, dig it elsewhere, you're digging it round when it ought to be square. You know, it is actually saying something, while at the same time just being fun. There's a playfulness about both The Doctor and Bernard Cribbins, which I think people with less imagination or less perception would just see the playfulness as meaning that something isn't serious. Whereas actually playfulness can often be very serious because it can be imparting quite a valuable life lesson that people may otherwise not have come across. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Yes. I mean, there's levity of, <laughs> of, of the right sort is, is a hugely important part of the armory of, you know, this is why dictators don't like satire and comedy. They don't not like it because they can't be bothered either way. They don't like it because they know that it's 
it threatens them. Laughing at people is actually quite an important thing to do. I think we all have to embrace the seriousness of how ridiculous life is. And then, you know, going back to the beginning of what I was saying, you know, I think it is interesting that there has always been quite a big queer sensibility in Doctor Who as well. And I'm sure it's got to do with the fact that the Doctor is an outsider. And the Doctor's companions, you know, who, who the, the Doctor takes onto the TARDIS and off they go into time and space are often sort of lonely people or people who feel out of place, whether it's another planet or whether it's Earth. They, they're people who are looking for something beyond what life has dealt them. And along comes the Doctor and offers it to them. And I think this is all, that's all quite sort of somewhere over the rainbow, isn't it, on, on a certain level. Uh, so I guess there is quite an obvious sort of sort of queer sensibility paying into it there. And, and it's wonderful, isn't it, that over the years, over the decades, Doctor Who itself as a show has evolved, if you like, alongside our broadening expectations and, you know, our embrace of diversity and so on, to the extent, of course, that we now have a female Doctor Who and we're shortly to have the first Doctor of colour. And, of course, some people just get terribly hot under the collar about this and steam starts coming out of their ears and it's all woke. Well, Doctor Who was always woke, right back in William Hartnell's time. The very first Doctor Who episode, before the Daleks even appeared, they go back to Stone Age times and teach a load of cavemen about the strength of social policy. You know, there's a, there's a scene where the Doctor's companion tells one of the cavemen that he is not stronger than the whole tribe. You know, again, it might be a simple-minded piece of political science, but it's always been there in the show, and it's done over the years. It's done stories about pollution and, you know, all sorts. So this idea that Doctor Who's suddenly gone woke is an absolute load of flapdoodle. What's happened is that society has changed, hopefully for the better, by and large, and Doctor Who has changed along with it. It's sort of reflected those changes as well, hasn't it? I mean, I remember when, when Russell T Davis brought it back and there was a big brouhaha around that because he was most famous at that time for Queer as Folk. So yes. there was a big question mark about, oh, what is he, what, what is this queer man going to do with, with Doctor Who, you know? Absolutely. Yes, he's going to make Doctor Who gay. Well, actually, if you look at the previous however many decades of Doctor Who, there wasn't actually any particular evidence that the Doctor had any kind of sexual orientation. You know, again, he's not like James Bond. He doesn't bed all the girls. He he's, gets on with saving the universe, actually. So the idea that the notion that the Doctor must have been straight and that along comes this outrageous person who's going to make it all gay is that's based on a, an assumption that is simply not borne out by you know you find me the bit where William Hartnell or Patrick Troughton gets all sexy it doesn't happen it's not there it reminds me of that badge from the GLF days how dare you presume that I'm straight you know yes <laughs> exactly exactly that yeah he's definitely a hero and I certainly share your affection and admiration and I also grew up watching Doctor Who it was it was really important to me. I, I think part of it is a previous guest, Alexis Gregory, talked about this a bit on the podcast, which is about how mm -hmm. if you grow up feeling other, that you do look for alternate worlds and it's an escapism, yes. but it's also teaching you how to survive while being true to yourself in a world that may not always be accepting of you. Yeah, absolutely. I well, it's very beautifully put. I, I absolutely agree. You, you've put it far better than I could have done. <laughs> Obviously, when you're eight years old and you're watching the Doctor battling the crinoids, this is not going through your head, but it is the fundamental essence of, you know, it is what you are imbibing. And, and it's it's good. It's good stuff. It's not bad stuff that you are that, that Doctor Who gives you. That's a very, very good start to our discussion. I'm very, <laughs> very happy with that. Um, who is the next person that you'd like to talk about? And again, why have you chosen them? When I went to university, I read English literature, reading 
continues to be an important part of my life. So I had to choose a writer and I thought, well, there's some of, you know, Shakespeare, Chaucer. And I mean, I had to choose someone. But again, I've gone for someone whose art and life display, I think, an extraordinary courage and intellect. I've chosen the great 19th century novelist George Eliot. She's someone I greatly admire. And uh, of course, the first thing that everyone finds out about George Eliot is that despite her name, she was a woman. The reason that she used the pseudonym was actually complex, you know. It wasn't just that it was, you know, writing novels was a man's world and she had to have a man's name. Of course that was a little part of it, but it was also because uh, she was a ferociously intelligent person. She was very well educated. She had been sent to quite good schools as a child by her father, but then she continued to educate herself. She sucked up knowledge absolutely voraciously. And she had mixed feelings about the popular novels of the day, particularly those that were written by women. And so one of the reasons she adopted a man's name, which doesn't sound very enlightened in a way, but it's just, this is how things were, you know, she didn't want to be associated with the vogue for what she saw as rather trivial work by female novelists. But the other reason, or an other reason why she used a pseudonym, was that scandalously for the time, because of course we're talking about the middle of the 19th century here, she was living in sin with a married man. Her soulmate, George Henry Lewis, he was a writer as well, a novelist and a playwright and an actor. He was a bit of a Renaissance man. She had run away with him. He deserted his wife for her and, you know, in the 1850s that brought with it absolute opprobrium. They were outcasts, you know. Her family cut her off, her brother stopped speaking to her. That was another reason, when she published her first novel, for it not to go out under the name of that woman who's living in sin with George Lewis. So they came up with the name George Eliot. It was, of course, George Lewis's first name. And Eliot, she just said, oh, that sounds like a good sort of name for a writer. But they pretended that he was a, he was a clergyman from Warwickshire who wanted to remain anonymous. That's what Lewis said when he took her first manuscript to the publisher. It was a tricky life for her already, you know, but... What happened was her first book, Scenes of Clerical Life, is the title of her first. It's not really a novel. It's three little short stories stuck together. It was a huge success. It was immediately seen as a, as a revelation in, in, and a revolution in English fiction. And her next book, first proper novel, Adam Bede, followed incredibly quickly, a year later. And that was an absolute bestseller. And overnight, practically overnight, within the space of about 18 months, she was a famous author and she was rich. And Queen Victoria was a fan. She started hanging out with Charles Dickens and Robert Browning and people like that. And initially she stuck to the pseudonym thing for the reasons that we've already said. But such was the success of Adam Bede that, amazingly, an imposter turned up claiming to be George Eliot, some bloke from Nuneaton. And the Times newspaper published it as fact. And of course, she was furious that this imposter went so far as to produce a manuscript of Adam Bede in his own handwriting. He copied the whole thing out. But of course, that was ridiculous. That was his downfall because Eliot's publisher already had plenty of manuscripts and letters in her real handwriting. And actually, that was when the fraud was exposed. So, But anyway, all of this precipitated her going public and saying, yep, it's me. And the fact that she was already so successful and so popular and was getting fan mail meant that despite the extraordinary scandal of the way she lived her life, which was absolutely unheard of at the time, you know, for someone in polite society, educated society, despite that, she kind of got away with it because she was so popular and so successful and people loved her book so much that it didn't matter after all. But the interesting thing is, you know, her success was bittersweet. Her life experiences helped to make her the writer that she was.
but they fed into her work. You know, her next two novels after that, The Mill on the Floss and Silas Marner, were both very much concerned with characters who get socially ostracised, outcasts. In The Mill on the Floss, there's a romance very similar. Maggie, the heroine of The Mill on the Floss, first falls in love with someone who's an old enemy of the family, but then runs away with a young man and disgraces herself and her brother cuts her off. You know, these are things that had actually happened to George Eliot. Mary Ann Evans, to give her her real name, by the way. I haven't actually said her real name yet. They're incredibly moving books and incredibly intelligent books. That's the thing. She doesn't just tell stories. This is the greatness of her art, is that all of her novels are actually philosophical tracts, if you like. She was very concerned with the theory of determinism, you know, the idea that all of our, that our lives are determined by all the preceding events in our lives and all the influences that come into them. You know, there's past action forms our present nature. She likes to put little epigraphs at the beginnings of her chapters. There's there's one at the top of a chapter in Middlemarch, which is arguably her masterpiece. It says, Our deeds still travel with us from afar, and what we have been makes us what we are. And this is what happens in her books, you know, that everyone's in this sort of web of society. And if you arrive at a recognition of where you are in the web then you can start to live a morally functional life and perhaps even take a step towards being in some way free. But if you don't, then you get trapped in the web and it becomes a, you know, more of a net, if you like. So again, rather like we were saying about Doctor Who, Eliot's novels return time and time again to the idea that, you know, we all live in a community and we all have a responsibility to all the members of that community. And a morally mature person is someone who is imaginatively aware of the feelings and the needs of other people as well as their own. Saying this out loud, it sounds like the bleeding obvious, but when you read a book like Middlemarch and you realise it's a big book, it's a big old book, and is beyond brilliant. I mean, many, many people have have cited it as the greatest novel ever written, and I I expect I agree with them. It's extraordinary as you read it and you realise that every single action, everything that happens, every tiny little moment is another little domino falling down and another way that all sorts of different people's lives are being affected. And there's a great compassion about that. Banish any idea that Victorian literature is a bit plodding. I think Middlemarch is an absolute page-turner. She was politically quite radical. You know, she was an abolitionist when the American Civil War broke out. She declared her support for the Union, which was a lot more than a lot of people in Britain did, you know. Then again, you know, by modern standards, she wasn't that much of a feminist. She actually didn't believe that women should have the vote unless they were sufficiently educated. And also, like an awful lot of Victorians, she did get mixed up in in all sorts of mystical mumbo-jumbo that we regard as slightly ridiculous nowadays. But underpinning all of her fiction is an absolute an imaginative sympathy for every single person. She doesn't have heroes and villains. She has people who are more altruistic than other people, and she has people who come a cropper because they do dreadful things. But every step of the way, we see why those dreadful things happened and how they happened. I think she said that she wanted her books to enlarge people's sympathies, which is exactly what they do, I think. The final lines of Middlemarch... She winds up the novel by telling you what happened to the heroine of the novel, what became of her in the end. And it ends just with her saying, The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And it's so true, isn't it? You know, most of us make no historic impact, but without that, network of society of people who just do their best by themselves and by everyone else and keep us all rolling along we'd be nowhere 
And actually, uh, <laughs> I know it's something that some of your other guests have already done, but but maybe I could just take a sidestep and mention someone else because it's just come to mind at this point, uh, which is uh, my own mother, who is another hero of mine or, or heroine of mine. My parents were both in the medical profession. They met when they were at medical school. And my father was a consultant surgeon and a very distinguished one too. My mother was also very brilliant in, in her field. But when my parents got married, this was in the mid-1960s, you know, as was so often the way in those days, my mother just stepped away from what would undoubtedly have been a brilliant career, a very distinguished career, and instead she devoted her life to being a housewife and bringing up three children, of which I was the middle one, you know. And attitudes and social expectations aren't quite the same these days, and and, and thank goodness for that. But back in those days, it was just what was expected. That's what mothers did. And, you know, once we were old enough, heading into our teens, she joined a, a surgery and became a GP, and she was very good at it, and she looked after a lot of people, and, and that was great. But without us, I know that she would have been a, a serious high flyer. And the older I get, the more I find myself thinking about what an extraordinary sacrifice she made, you know, throwing away the best years of her career for, for me and my brother and sister, and, and what a wonderful childhood she gave us. And that's the story of countless women down the centuries isn't it and there are no greater heroes not that my mother does rest in an unvisited tomb but when she did die a few years ago I did think about exactly that quotation from George Eliot you know the number of people who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs they're the people who keep us all going. I liked what you were saying about George Eliot in terms of living with the consequences of your past actions and how that shapes you as a character and yes. also that she was very groundbreaking. And that immediately makes me think of <laughs> somebody else who's also <laughs> famous for being groundbreaking. And one of my favourite quotations, this is probably a paraphrase, but there was a wonderful quotation from this artist where, where he said that you have to learn to live with all of your past selves. And that's how you basically achieve peace, which I thought was the most yes. profoundly wise thing to say, especially coming from somebody who was known for supposedly not being the same person for being different people all the time but actually as he got older he kind of adapted to that absolutely and we are of course now talking about your hero and mine David Bowie yeah absolutely and of course of course I was always going to talk about him I mean he he's a hero and a pioneer in so many ways and that quotation you've just come up with is one of the keys there are so many it's, a, it's like a bridge with all the keystones in aren't there? there are so many things to say about David Bowie but but yeah that awareness of the self which he, I think, learned over the years, because he certainly, there were times when he was struggling with various of his own past selves. By the standards of many people's lives, his was a bit of a crazy paving, wasn't it? But he, he fitted it all together eventually over the years. A pioneer in so many ways. I mean, obviously, the number one thing, and the reason we all love him, is that he was a bloody fantastic songwriter and created amazing music. He was a wonderful performer. He pushed back the barriers of, of the, the way that contemporary music could be presented in a theatrical context. And he wrote fantastic songs and released fantastic albums. So all of that. But he was a pioneer in other ways too, wasn't he? You know, for many of us, one of the most important things about Bowie was that he shone a light into areas and corners that tended to be avoided or unexplored. And once again, like George Eliot and like Doctor Who, he showed us, you know, not only that it was okay, but that it was great to be exactly who you were. Whatever you were, or whatever you wanted to be, that's brilliant. 
take my hand and I'll and I'll take you there is what Bowie seemed to be. You know that that famous bit that so many people cite in the Starman performance on top of the pops when he gets to the line, I had to phone someone so I picked on you and he points down the camera, looks down the camera, and every child sitting at home on that night in nineteen seventy two thought he was pointing at them. He had that extraordinary ability even on stage, you know, I was lucky enough to see him live many, many times. And even in a you know, Birmingham NEC or Milton Keynes Bowl or Wembley Stadium or whatever, he could somehow project to obviously to the whole crowd but also to you individually you know you've kind of almost felt like he was singing directly to you that's an extraordinary gift to have you know I mean some great Shakespearean actors can do that as well you know an actor can go on and play Hamlet and you're absolutely convinced that they're doing it entirely for your benefit if they're if they're a really good actor so that's a really important part of it of course another important thing about Bowie is he's famous for having you know he absorbed so many influences as part of his shtick was that he was absolutely receptive to everything around him he just had that sort of imagination and that sort of brain so he was endlessly fascinated by everything that was around him and it all found its way into his work you know into his costumes and his music and his lyrics and his, and everything but that meant of course because he was very generous about that he didn't he didn't hide it he didn't pretend he wasn't doing that he went on and on and on about it and David Bowie became the person didn't he who steered us towards the good stuff, you know, the Velvet Underground or Jean Cocteau or German Expressionist Cinema or, or, or Jacques Brel, whatever. David Bowie was, was a, a kind of guide to worlds of, of art and literature and cinema and music that we might not otherwise have discovered. So he was, you know, he was kind of like a double whammy that, wasn't it? He was brilliant and he showed us all this other stuff that was brilliant as well, which is quite a gift, really. I discovered him. I realised later on that I'd actually been listening to his music for years without realising it because one of my best friends at junior school had a teenage brother and Richard and I used to go home to his house for tea and his teenage brother, who wore very, very tight, crotch-hugging velvet pantaloons. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may be more focused on that at the time. And he used to play us these records and I realised years later that he was playing us Space Oddity and Ziggy Stardust and, and right. Dogs. But I became aware of him sort of consciously when I saw him on the Kenny Everett show. Yes, and right, doing uh, Boys Keep Swinging. Boys Keep yeah. Swinging. And, and one of the things that I love about that is that the popular image of Bowie was that he was very po-faced. And actually Bowie was incredibly playful and was actually really fond of taking the piss out of himself. Absolutely. Well, this, I get, doesn't it just goes exactly back to what we were saying about Doctor Who and the importance of being silly well you know in the right context absolutely well I guess we're a similar sort of age I was born a couple of years after you but but that was one of my formative Bowie experiences too I was already aware of him the first single I ever went out and bought with my own pocket money at the tender age of nine I think was Sound and Vision so that was a couple of years earlier I would love to say that this proved that I was a child of great discernment and taste but I think the next single I bought was uh, Yes Sir I Can Boogie by Baccarat <laughs> no not look hey Great single, great single. No, no, I'm not going to diss that. It's good, great song, Lee. So no, good. I was a child of great taste in December. No, that's not bad, is it? That was, that's pretty cool. But then I didn't really know who David Bowie was. I was just too young to have been there for Ziggy and Diamond Dogs and all that. I did, that was like before my awareness of pop music, really. So I kind of knew this guy, David Bowie, existed. And I think I'd seen the cover of Diamond Dogs in WH Smith and been slightly freaked out by it. But uh, yeah, Sound and Vision, but it was just a song. It was, you know, that was a single that came without any, he didn't do it on top of the pops or there wasn't a video for it or anything. So it was just a sonic artifact. And I think like you, the first time I really saw him up on screen performing was doing Boys Keep Swinging on the Kenny Everett show. And I can remember not just the 
comedy sketch that he did, which is very important, but also the actual performance of the song was so peculiar because, it, again, it walks this tightrope between sort of being slightly strange and artistic and being slightly silly. It was on a set very similar to the actual video of Boys Keep Swinging, which, of course, was directed by the same guy, David Mallet, who directed The Kenny Everett Show. And it was because Bowie went on The Kenny Everett Show, he hadn't shot the video yet, and he got on really well with Mallet and said, can you come and shoot my video for me? And they did it, like, the following week or something. But anyway, that's by the by. On The Kenny Everett Show, he was, yeah, he's kind of... He was leaning right back and banging his leg into the ground in this bizarre, angular way. And then, in between bits, doing strange jazz hands, like some sort of... I mean, just weird. And I was absolutely mesmerised. And I thought it was a great song. I still, It's still one of my favourite Bowie singles. And then, as you say, at the end of the song, we go into this little skit where Kenny Everett comes on as his... Um, angry of Mayfair character, isn't it? The guy with the bowler hat and the pinstripe suit, but when he turns around, you can see he's wearing knickers and a bra. And he chases Bowie round the set and says something, say, look at you, you lily-livered mincer. I, I fought in the war for young men like you and I never got one, or something like that anyway. you know. And, it's, and Bowie is kind of prancing about being strange and doing a sort of bow and arrow with his violin or something. And as you say, the idea that David Bowie was this kind of glacial, po-faced, Berlin synthesizer person, which was kind of the image he had at that point, was just blown out of the water at that point, wasn't it? You know, throughout his career, he was someone else who had a keen sense of humour, an absolute willingness to be silly, to expose himself to potential ridicule through his music. You know, he never shied away from doing crazy things, you know, uh, on an album like Outside, later on in the 90s, he's doing strange characters. He's playing an old man called Algeria Touch Shriek. And again, you see, there were people saying, oh, that's a bit silly. And you think, yeah, I know it's, I, do you know, I expect David Bowie has noticed that it's a bit silly. He's not hasn't accidentally decided to be a 78-year-old man called Algeria Touch Shriek or a, or a mad artist lady called Ramona Stone with fish strapped to her body. He is deliberately being silly. It's intentional. And even Black Star, you know, his final masterpiece, people have talked a lot about its imposing majesty, and quite rightly, it's a, it's a, it's a monumental piece of work. But it's also very impish in places and has a great sense of humour. I mean, that song, Girl Loves Me, on there, that's not a song to, to, to listen to with a furrowed brow and sort of, you know, stroking your chin. It's it's an absolute riot. And even and the middle section of the title track of Blackstar, when he's doing all those funny rhymes and in the video playing this almost like a sort of jester, trickster character, sort of waggling his finger and waggling his hips, there's a playfulness, as you say, that's a good word, I think, a playfulness that goes right back to, well, I don't know, right back to the Laughing Gnome, if you like. It's always there, and I think it's a key part of his personality as, a, as, as an artist, along with, of course, a lot of very serious, very sort of brow-furrowing stuff that's there as well. They, they, they complement each other, just as the comedy in the comic Porter in Macbeth comes on and under minds the fact that Duncan has just been murdered. You know, it's a kind of similar sort of thing, isn't it? It's an artistic technique as old as the hills in a way. Juno Roach, who was on the previous podcast of this one, talked about a friend of hers called Simon when she was young, who was the first person she knew who died of AIDS. And they used to go to Camden Palace as teenagers in the sixth form. And she said that this Simon character was so brave because he would wear these outlandish clothes and he would model himself on Bowie and he had two different coloured eyes. People think now, oh, everyone loved Bowie, but actually in those days, if you like Bowie, everyone called you a puff. It was actually quite risky to wear your Bowie fandom on your sleeve back in the late 70s still. Absolutely. I, th I think in a way there's been a certain amount of 
rose-tinted retconning going on about how Bowie was always loved. I mean, of course he had number one singles and sold lots of albums, but, but he was always a kind of edgy outside, and as you say, slightly risky, especially for, for boys, I think. If you were a girl into David Bowie, for some reason that was less controversial. But if you were a, if you were a boy who liked this weirdo who dressed up in makeup and things, absolutely, it could land you in a certain amount of bother. I mean, because of course, you know, we haven't really talked about that, and of course, you know, he was a queer icon. I think that itself has been misconstrued as well in, in some quarters, though. I mean, increasingly, as the years have gone by, I think there's a slight idea that's gone about that, that because Bowie wasn't actually gay, I mean, we do know that, don't we? You know, he, <laughs> he wasn't really gay. Uh, he may have dabbled. But the idea that when he gave his famous interview in, in 1972 and said he was gay, that he was somehow being a bit of a tourist, you know, and uh, appropriating gay culture just to boost his image or his profile when it was convenient for him. And I know some people ended up feeling disappointed or maybe even sort of let down when it turned out that he was actually not gay or that he, you know, when he kind of rebranded himself as something more mainstream in the 1980s, this sort of thing. But you see, I think all of that is rather missing the point because I don't think there was ever a time well, I know that there was never a time when Bowie stood up and said, I am the figurehead or the poster boy for this cause or that movement. It's the opposite of what Bowie was. What he did was he encouraged the ability of every individual one of us to be exactly what we were. This is again, it's Doctor Who again, isn't it? You know, to live our own best life and be ourselves. And in that regard, you know, there wasn't anything inauthentic or insincere about the way he explored the whole territory of sexuality or, or gender identity you know for me as a young boy the video of boys keep swinging with, with bowie in drag uh, was a really important moment the actual sexual orientation of david is spectacularly irrelevant to that in fact in a way it's better that he wasn't gay because that means he was working harder at what he was doing rather than just doing it because that's what came naturally if you see what i mean i think the idea that that he sort of somehow let people down by turning out not to be as gay as he pretended to be is is missing the point on an Olympic scale. I couldn't agree more. And I also think that his work was queer in the sense of being very disruptive and of challenging norms around gender, around sexuality. And also the idea that one didn't have to be one authentic self, but there were multiple selves that you could yes. be, which to me at the age of 14, 15, discovering my sexuality, trying to come to terms with who I was and who I could be, that was a really powerful message. Absolutely right. I mean, the, the, and of course, this is a theme that runs through Bowie's songwriting. The idea of burrowing further down or putting layers on top, whichever it might be, to discover the, the next self, it's, it comes a time and time again. You know, there's a song called Who Can I Be Now, of course, that was done in the Young American session. So if you look back at um, The Wild-Eyed Boy from Free Cloud, there's that plaintive line where he sings about being really you or really me and what you're going to be to the real me that's a line from one of the songs on low isn't it comes up time and time again this idea of the search for the authentic self you know towards the end of his life by the time he was doing albums like heathen and and reality and his last few albums he spoke in interviews many many times about how all of his work from the earliest days had really revolved around the same few little fundamental questions about the nature of what it means to be alive you know there's a certain sense of spirituality although again i mean that's a huge that's a huge topic to unpack he had a complicated relationship with um well with god but also just with what life is what life is for what are we all doing here? And what do we do with our three score years and ten? And on an album like Heathen, that's the sound of a man in his 50s 
tearing away at the layers of everything that he's explored throughout his career and rethinking it again. And I find it tremendously moving. He wrote often about isolation, space oddity, there's a man adrift in space, sound and vision is about pulling down the blinds and shutting the mm. world out, fame is about being isolated inside the back of your limousine. I would have loved to have known what he would have produced in the age of Covid. I'm sure something extraordinary would have come out of it, wouldn't it? Because, you know, as we've said, everything around him was a trigger and influence on that, you know, it sort of brought on the next the next thing. So I'm sure Covid in itself would have given him material. I mean, probably quite apocalyptic material. I'm Future exactly legend. That. Exactly. It may have been another another one of those, another Diamond Dogs type effort. But uh, yeah, no, the, that search for connection and for authentic interaction. There is this, this sort of seesaw between all those isolated characters like Major Tom or the girl in Life on Mars. And at the same time, this, I mean, one of my favourite lines, the, it's such a simple line, but the, whenever I hear it, I think, oh, that's, that's David going quite deep, isn't it? It's in Station to Station. You've got to keep searching and searching and, oh, what will I be believing and who will connect me with love? I love that line. Yeah. I love that line. Um, I love the, the, the sort of insistence of repeating searching, you know, he's got to keep searching and searching. Again, in um, Fantastic Voyage on Lodger, that I've got to write it down, but I'm still getting educated, but I've got to write it down. It, there's a kind of almost a sort of obsessive side to his intellectual pursuit, which is very exciting to hear, isn't it? I mean, and it's right there, right to the end, you know, in the, the video of Lazarus, where indeed he looks as though he's doing, I've got to write it down again, you know, he's sitting at the desk with his... There's a kind of exploration of what it is to be an artist, which of course he was, but he's constantly, he doesn't take it for granted at any point. He keeps asking himself what an artist is or what on earth he thinks he's playing at. I'm glad you quoted those lines from Station to Station because oftentimes I read articles or, or books about him and people say that a word on a wing is the cry for help on that album and everything mm. else is just this icy European man. It's like, that's not true at all. Mm. There is so yeah. much passion in Station to Station itself. Absolutely, absolutely, totally agree. Yeah, yeah. And, and the way he sings it, you know, the emotion in that vocal is quite something. I mean, I think, as you say, I think the whole album is a remarkable piece of work. And, you know, <laughs> David Bowie was certainly not living his best life when he recorded that album, as we know. And it's it, quite remarkable that out of a period of such anguish uh, he produces this extraordinarily beautiful album which is equal parts conventional and strange you know it manages to be both at the same time somehow doesn't it you know a song like tvc15 is is a sort of bouncy pop song and then but it's also just the fucking weirdest thing you've ever heard um, and then you know sort of something quite uh, just something very beautiful like wild is the wind which is just a, you know a cover version and he just does it to the limit of how beautiful a song can be and then something really angular and rocky like stay it's, it's got six tracks on it and it covers so much ground that album it's it's yeah brilliant brilliant stuff I remember when I first heard that album, I borrowed it from a friend at school. His brother had it. I remember taking it home and putting it on and just being so blown away by that record. I was like, oh my God, it's just genius. It's sometimes my favourite Bowie album. People occasionally do ask me what my favourite one is and I always say, oh, I don't do favourites. And I, well, I don't, I just can't, I haven't got a favourite. But it's certainly it's certainly one of them, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, on, it's on the top row, along with Hunky Dory and Low and, and pretty much all of the others, actually. Obviously, you're renowned as a Bowie scholar and you've you've obviously studied him and listened to him what do you think is the main thing that you've taken away from from him what is the main lesson that you've learned from him I think it's I think it's really that it's always 
more interesting and more rewarding to keep on moving forward, you know. If you do something that's very successful, there's obviously a temptation to do a bit more of that. Uh, and that's what an awful lot of artists do. You know, they find, they go, ah, cracked it. This is a number one album or a best-selling novel or whatever it is. And then they just do sort of part two of that, which probably sells lots of copies as well, but is, you know, the minute you start treading water. And Bowie, of, you know, of course, from time to time in his career, as he was the first to, to admit, he did slightly fall into that trap. Even in Ziggy time, you know, I mean, Aladdin Sane is an album that we all love, but that is kind of a second helping of Ziggy that was done pretty much on the fly, on tour, you know, or the middle of a tour. And it's a fantastic album, of course, but that's just the speed that albums came out in those days, isn't it? I mean, it's incredible to think that, that Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane and Pinups all came out in less than two years. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And then, you know, later in the 80s, of course, famously, he said, you know, he did slightly lose his way after the phenomenal success of Let's Dance. He was suddenly making money and enjoying a kind of success that he had never enjoyed before, but it was actually a kind of success that was in some ways detrimental to his creativity and his job satisfaction. Uh, and the next couple of albums weren't perhaps the greatest he'd ever done. Although, you know, pick the best bits out of those albums. Blue Jean and Time Will Crawl and some of those tracks. I wouldn't not want to have them. But most of the time, anyway, during his career, he, in a rather stubborn, confrontational way, you know, his stock in trade was to not give the audience what they wanted or what they thought they wanted because of the last thing, but to do something brand new. And sometimes people just went straight with it and, and lapped it up. And at other times, famously, whether it be the terrible reviews that greeted Low in 1977, which is now regarded as one of the seminal albums in rock history, or whether it be the frankly ridicule that greeted some of his 1990s albums, which now are being re-evalued and regarded as, as among the strongest work of his later period, albums like Outside and Earthling, which were laughed off the stage at the time by some, by some critics. But, you know, he was always ahead of the game and he, that, that wonderful courage of, you know, the, the, being completely unafraid to do something new, step off the brink and take his whole band with him in doing that, you know. It's a wonderful thing that he used to quote. I think Brian Eno originally said it, but, but David liked it a lot. He said, you know, in, in art, you can crash your plane and walk away from the wreckage and you can just keep on doing that. And why wouldn't you want to do that? That's far more interesting than just having a safe flight. Some of those plane crashes that he gave us resulted in some of the greatest music has ever been made. So I think that's the, you know, going back to your question, uh, it's that absolute willingness to not sit still and to move on to the next thing, uh, which is not unique among a musical artist, but I don't think any other artist has ever displayed that attribute, you know, quite so, quite so graphically as David Bowie did over such a long career. And of course, that's one of the reasons why it was such a long career. You know, he, he didn't just sort of settle back on his laurels and, and, you know, he could have just stopped at station to station or, or let's dance, you know, and said, oh, that's, that's who I am. I'll just do that stuff for the rest of uh, my career. He, that never happened. That never happened. And he was surprising us right up to the end, wasn't he? There was a wonderful interview that I hadn't seen at the time. It's from the mid 90s where he's talking about advice to creative people and he's saying if you're in the water and your feet are touching the bottom you're in the wrong place that's a, such a great piece of advice i do actually think there is something heroic about that that you're going to take the risk of making a fool of yourself of failing and you're going to do it anyway that is that is heroic to me absolutely that's exactly right i, I totally agree so yeah it's a great quotation that it, it comes up in the new film moon age daydream brett morgan who directed that film i had the 
pleasure of, of helping out a, a little bit on, on the film over the last couple of years. And it's not a documentary in the sense of, you know, having a narrator and talking heads. It's a, it's a collage of, it's a portrait of David Bowie created entirely out of archive, out of if, sound and vision, if you will. And, you know, the, the, the editing and the intricacy of what Brett has done is, is quite remarkable. There are here and there some very exciting bits of footage that have never been seen before, but some of it is familiar stuff and some of it is stuff that you we will have heard that is slightly more obscure that quotation uh, comes up and it's it's a it's such a good one it's such a it's such a wonderful observation one of the other things that brett has done in the film very cleverly i think is that he hasn't made a distinction between you know in his use of archive of video and audio he hasn't made a distinction between david bowie himself you know in a interview situation with Russell Harty or whatever and the characters played by David Bowie on stage or indeed in movies and things so some of the quotes are actually quotations from Merry Christmas Mr Lawrence or something like that an awful lot of the acting roles that David Bowie took on that wasn't just some sort of side project they did actually kind of chime in with the work that he was doing at the time it's something like the elephant man or the man who fell to earth it speaks for itself doesn't it these were sort of expansions of the work that Bowie was interested in doing at the time anyway he was always attracted to sort of outsider characters whether it be those ones or in Merry Christmas Mr Lawrence or even in Labyrinth you know I mean there's there's something to be said for for the choice of characters and the choice of projects that he that he was involved in there's another lovely quotation that Brett uses in the film actually which comes from um, Mr Rice's Secret which is one of the less well-known film projects that Bowie did towards the end of the 90s but it's such a lovely quote I actually used it in my book as well most recent edition of my book the one that came out after David died uh, it just seemed like a very appropriate sort of line to use where Mr Rice played by Bowie in the film says um, I'm going to get it wrong now I'm not going to get it exactly right but it's something along the lines of it doesn't matter how long you've got on this in this life or, or uh, what you don't manage to achieve it's what you do with the time that you've got and that's just such a perfect epitaph for David Bowie isn't it because what he did with the time that he had was quite remarkable and exceptional and touched so many lives and that's I guess you know that's why he's a hero to me and to so many other people and to you. That's perfect. Thank you so, so much for taking part in this podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Lovely to talk to you, Paul, as well. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. This has been We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.